Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10, and we're looking at the message this morning, a message from a mighty angel. So up to, <clears throat> up to this point, there's been six trumpet judgments, and as a result, the world is now controlled by Satan and the beast. Even with all of the destructive judgment that has been inflicted on men so far, they still haven't repented. So more judgments are necessary and are on the way, which will be the bull and vile judgments that will be given in chapter 16. Now God's wrath is going to be dumped out on the world out of the bull judgments. God's wrath will be poured out and the world is going to taste the terror of God's judgment. It is not good. Chapter 10 is another one of those interludes, an intermission, a break, whichever you want to call it, between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Chapter 10 starts with a, sec- with a second string of sequence of breaks. And between the sixth and the seventh seals, there was a break in chapter 8, remember, where two groups were redeemed and sealed during the Great Tribulation period the 144,000 Jews, and then those who came out of the Great Tribulation. Here between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, we have a break as three men come into the picture. And in this chapter, the mighty angel is described. And also in chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, the two unknown witnesses will come on the scene as well. Chapters 10 through 14 Tell us about the things that will take place at the middle of the tribulation. At the beginning of this period, the Antichrist started uh, his takeover by promising to be a friend and helper of the Jews to protect them and help them rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. But after three and a half years, he'll break his promise to them. He'll invade the temple and then he'll start persecuting the Jews. But you see, it doesn't matter how horrible things get in the middle of this uh, part of the tribulation because God is never without his witnesses in the world. In chapters 10 and 11, we have three important witnesses. The first one is the mighty angel that we'll see here in chapter 10. Then secondly, there are two special witnesses in chapters 11, uh, chapter 11, 1 through 14. And then third, we have the elders in heaven in chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. So let's begin now in chapter 10 with verses 1 through 3. And John says, I still, he says, I saw still, notice, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. So three different opinions. There, there are different opinions about who this mighty angel is. And, you know, you have to look at the words very closely. Some say it is the Lord Jesus Christ based on the description back in chapter 1, verse 16, because they're very similar. Some say it can't be the Lord Jesus Christ because notice what it says in the beginning, another angel, another angel. It makes Jesus sound like he's just another ordinary angel. 
So they say he can't be the Lord Jesus Christ because he can't be considered just another angel like all the others, which is true. The word another used in verse 1 that's used to describe this particular angel, it means another of the same kind. Well, Jesus is not an angel like any other angel. We've heard him called the angel of the Lord. So the word another here that's used says this mighty angel that John is talking about is just like all the angels that have been mentioned before. Can't be. If this was Jesus that the Apostle John was speaking about here, it would be a different word for angel. It would be the word for angel that means another, an angel of another kind. Because Jesus Christ is fundamentally different from all other angels. Jesus couldn't be described as an angel that's like all the other angels because, again, they're created beings. Jesus is the everlasting, eternal God. Hebrews tells us about Jesus Christ, verses one, uh, chapter 1, 3, and 4. When he had by himself, speaking of Jesus, purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the mystery on high, having become, listen, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews 1, 5 through 6, For to which of the angels did the Father ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1.13, but to which of the angels has he, the father, ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So again, this, this, this uh, angel described here could not be, you know, and you read it, the, Jesus Christ. Very much because of what we just heard uh, described in Hebrews about Jesus Christ. So this, though, is no ordinary angel. Because no created being, no matter how significant or magnificent or impressive or glorious, has the privileges, powers, and characteristics like the ones described here. Now, this mighty angel could be the strong angel. That's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 2, or the angel in chapter 18, verse 1, who has great authority. Now, it's not likely that this is Michael the archangel, who is referred to by his name in chapter 12, verse 7, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, nor Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. It couldn't be Jesus since he's never been called an angel in the New Testament. Plus, the angel comes to earth before the tribulation is over. Jesus is only coming back one more time, and that's the end of the tribulation period. So he couldn't be coming back here, as John said, another time, because that would then conflict with the scripture. So again, the angel comes to earth before the tribulation is over. This one that John is talking about. Jesus comes back only one time, and that's at the end of Armageddon, chapter 19. But now, in chapter 4, verse 3, there was a rainbow around the throne of God. Here we see it on his head. The, the, the rainbow was a reminder of God's promise to man that he'd never destroy the world again with a flood. So whoever this angel is, is, it's given authority from the throne of God. God is also identified often with clouds. God led Israel by a cloud in Exodus chapter 16. There were dark clouds over Mount Sinai when the law was given to Moses in Exodus 19. When God appeared to Moses, he appeared in a cloud of glory, Exodus chapter 24. In Psalm 104.3, we read this. The psalmist said, He makes the clouds His chariot. 
In Acts 19, we also read that Jesus ascended to heaven in a cloud. And when he returns, it will be with the clouds. Revelation 1.7. Jesus said, And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Revelation 24.30. John says the angel's face was like the sun, matching the same description of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 16. And his feet matches the Lord's description in chapter 1, verse 15. And his voice was like a lion. That takes us back to chapter 5, 5. Jesus also or often appeared to people in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And this was a temporary appearance. And it was for a special purpose. It was not to be a permanent manifestation. There are two other features that would suggest that the angel was Jesus Christ. The book in his hand and the position that he was in. This little book that he's holding, it contains the rest of the prophecies uh, message that John is going to deliver. Because John was the only one worthy, I'm sorry, because Jesus was the only one worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. You know, we were told that, that back in chapter 5, verse 5. You could presume that he's the only one worthy to give the apostle John the rest of the message. The way the angel was positioned here, the way we see him standing, he had one foot on the sea and the other on land. It's a picture of a conqueror who's taking ownership of his territory. He's claiming the whole world. Only the victorious Savior could make a claim like that. And then John says here, the mighty angel cried with a loud voice. And then something startling happened. We read that seven thunders uttered their voices. The number seven, it speaks of completeness and perfection. Thunder is often a sign of judgment in the Bible. Exodus 9.23 says, Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down uh, to the earth and the Lord rained hail uh, on the land of Egypt. 1 Samuel 7.10 says, The Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Isaiah 29, 6 says, From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and a loud voice. These seven loud, powerful voices that John heard here, he says they sounded like thunder. They cried out for vengeance and judgments on a, on a sinful, rebellious, uh, Christ-rejecting earth. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what the thundering voices said, but just hearing it, would definitely bring fear to the whole uh, setting of judgment. Look at verse 4 now. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. The rest of the chapter has to do with John and how he responds to God's word and God's will. Notice the close attention that John is paying to the word of God. He is a good example to follow. James tells us in James 1, 19 and 22, he says, So then, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear. We need to be swift to hear when it comes to listening to the word of God. Believers who hear the word of God must receive it with a teachable spirit. And we must apply God's word to our lives every single day. To hear God's word and not to obey it, that's to be deceived. John is now the central figure, figure to show, the, very, to show the, the everyday effect 
that these visions of the judgment should have on our everyday lives. John paid close attention to these voices that he heard. And it says, when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, and listen to what John says here, verse 4, he says, I was about to write. He said, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and don't write them down. Verses 5 through 7. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it and the earth and the things that are in it and the, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be de- a delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Here in 5 through 7, John sees this angel standing on the sea and on the land with his right hand raised in the heaven as taking an oath. He swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created all things like he was taking an oath. So if this is the angel of our Lord Jesus Christ, why would he take an oath? If this angel is the Lord Jesus Christ, why would he take an oath? You see, we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him and without him was nothing made that was made. We also read in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So again, this is, if this was Jesus Christ, why would he be taking an oath? He's God. There's nobody higher than him that he could take an oath to. It was in order to confirm the seriousness and the certainty of what the angel said. Remember when God made his covenant with Abraham, he did it under oath to himself. And when he declared his son to be high priest, he did it with an oath. We read in Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He also took an oath when he promised David that the son of David, Jesus Christ, would come from his ancestry. So the significance of verse six is on God, the creator. The heavens, the oceans, the streams, the vegetation, the earth have already experienced God's early stages of his judgment, but there's more on the way. But the point is now there shouldn't be any more delays with the coming judgment. God, by his mercy and his grace, has been holding back his judgment because he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance so that lost sinners will have time to repent. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 1 through 9, this is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again. From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. 
They deliberately forgot that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out of out from water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept, notice, for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So now God is not going to delay any longer his judgments. And he's going to bring a close his purposes once and for all, which is God's judgments on unrepentant and a Christ rejecting humanity that can't be put off any longer. Keep in mind, remember back in chapter 5, the martyred saints that were under the altar in heaven, they were crying out and they were concerned because it seemed that God was delaying his judgment. They seemed to think that God was delaying avenging their, 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 uh, their deaths. It was, sorry, chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. In chapter 6, verse 10, remember they said, How long, O Lord? How long, Lord, before you bring judgment upon those that persecuted us and, and took our lives? And how long, O Lord, how often do we ask that question? That's such an often asked question in prayer to God. And especially during difficult times in our life, times when we're struggling. Times, you know, we've, we've cried out to God. The cry of God's people, the suffering people have been, you know, they've been crying that out ever since the beginning. Listen to Psalm 13, 1 through 4. Again, this psalm is known as the how long psalm. Oh, Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. God's people have always called upon God for vengeance upon a a persecuting, uh, a a suffering and inflicted world. And what seems like a delay with God, you know, what seems like he's taking his time, what seems like he's not in a hurry, uh, you know, his promises, you know, they're not answered when we want them to be answered many times. And so people scoff at the word of God. Like Peter said, he says, you know, God, you gave your promises, but scoffers, they're, they're saying nothing's changed since the beginning. You know, and they deny God's word and they question the validity of God's word. They question the sincerity of God's word because, you see, those, those promises of God aren't answered right away. You know, and Peter said scoffers will come in the last days. He said walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But we always need to remember God's word is true. God's timing is perfect. God is not on a time clock. He doesn't live by a a watch. His words will come to pass. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. 
See, this should mean comfort to God's people. It may not be what I want it to be, but it's going to come. Judgment will come to sinners. We need to remember Psalm 31.15. The psalmist said, my times are in your hand. My times are in God's hands. God promises that the kingdom age is going to be fulfilled when, when the seventh trumpet sounds. And Jesus Christ will start his kingdom reign upon this earth. So we get the picture of Jesus coming with the, with the title deed to the earth, announcing that there's not going to be any more delay. The signal for the completion of the mystery of God is the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Now, the last half of the tribulation starts when the angels start to pour out the bold judgments that finish the wrath of God in Revelation 15. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. He uses this phrase, the mystery of God, in Colossians 2.2. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. So here in Revelation, John's talking about the mystery of God It's going to be revealed. The mystery of God is the truth of salvation that hasn't been made known before. But it's going to be made and it's going to be known and it's going to be finished as the judgments of the last half of the catastrophes move forward in the tribulation period. Significant pieces, important pieces of this mystery have already been made known through the Old Testament and the New Testament prophets. But there's still a lot that's left that's not known, but it will be made known. And it'll be understood only when these events take place in the tribulation period. Our redemption will be completed at the second coming of Christ. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Verse 10. Then I took the little book, John says, out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. So the voice from heaven that John heard back in chapter 4 that forbid him to write anything down, the words of the seven thunders spoke to him again. Like he had done in previous chapters, John again is involved now in this vision. He's not just standing by anymore. He's not just an observer anymore. He's now becoming a participant in what's being revealed here. Notice the voice said to him, go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Then, to show us what the right response should be on our part, as Christians to God's coming judgment, John gives us a detailed demonstration of what the right response should be on the part of Christians to God's coming judgment. John John was told to do this. He said, take that book and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. The angel knew how John would respond to this truth in obedience. He did as exact, exactly what Ezekiel did in a similar scene in Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through chapter 3, verse 3. 
In this vision, John symbolically took the little book out of the angel's hand and he ate it. Just like the angel had said. When John put it in his mouth, the taste was sweet as honey. But after he ate it and it got to his stomach, it turned bitter. Eating the scroll symbolized the taking in and soaking up and the obedience to the word of God. We read in Ezekiel 3, 1 through 3. Moreover, God said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and I and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give to you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like like honey in sweetness. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.34, Give me understanding that I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Colossians 3.16, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Job 23.12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I love that about Job. He saw saw the necessity of spending time in God's word more important than eating his necessary food. And then we have in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, again, speaking of the word. God says, now this is the commandment and these are the statutes and judgments with the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. When you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 13. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. All of this about the word of God. You see, when John took in the holy book, the word of God, which had to do with the rest of the judgments as the Lord was taking ownership of the whole world, John found that the words that were written in this little book were bittersweet. They were sweet to John. And, and they're sweet to all other believers. And, and, and God's judgment is going to come as well. Sweet because John and all other believers want the Lord to bring his judgment. They want the Lord to again to take back ownership of this world. You know, uh, Paul said that, 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 that Satan was the God of this world. He was the prince of this world. 
Now, God, has, God does own it, but he's allowing Satan to have his way right now. You know, God's earth, it's rightfully his. And it's to be honored by God and it's to be glorified as he deserves. But you see, on the other hand, to know about the horrible judgments that are waiting for a Christ-rejecting, unbelieving people, that's what turned the word of God's bitter in, in, in John's stomach. All those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and know and understand what John is feeling, again, the positive as well as the negative. All Christians were waiting and waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for Him to come back. They want Satan to be destroyed. We want Satan to be destroyed. We want him to be put away forever so that the wonderful kingdom of Jesus Christ can be set up on earth where Jesus will rule, rule and reign in glory. And He will have supreme rule over the whole universe while bringing, again, about righteousness, truth, and peace in the world once and for all. But on the other hand, we're very sad and very sorrowful for the ungodly, for those who don't know Jesus Christ, and they, they will then receive the judgments of God. Like the Apostle Paul, we say, with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My con- conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled, filled with bitter and sorrow and unending grief for my people. Paul said, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Israel if that would save them. And Paul had such a breaking heart for those that rejected Christ, for those who didn't know them, as we should. It's a sad thing because they're going to spend eternity in hell. And that's why it's so important that we understand that we need to get the word out to those that don't know him. Look at verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So the angel orders John to prophesy again. Why? Because you see, his work wasn't finished yet. He has to prophesy again about many peoples, about many nations and languages and kings. The word, the word nations here, it usually refers to non-Jewish nations, to Gentiles. John will have a lot more to say about the nations of the world when he gives the rest of the prophecy. Now, when you study prophecy, it should have. It should have an obvious influence on your life. If you believe it, if you believe what the word of God says, it should have an obvious influence in your life. It should bring you to Jesus Christ if you're not a believer, first of all. And if you are a Christian, it should bring you closer to Christ if you're a believer. The Apostle John wasn't the first one of God's prophets that was commanded to eat a scroll. As I said earlier, Ezekiel also was commanded to do the same thing. Ezekiel had the same experience in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8 through chapter 3, verse 4. Listen to what the conversation was between God and Ezekiel. But you, son of, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. 
and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with the scroll with the scroll that I give to you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like the, like honey and sweetness. Then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Notice God's words needed to be spoken to the people. So after eating the, so eating the scroll, it represented totally accepting God's word, totally accepting his prophetic message. When Ezekiel opened his mouth, he would speak from the very same words that God gave him. God spoke against the people of Israel. He spoke words of sorrow and words of doom. And in the same way, John was told to to totally eat up the message of judgment here in chapter 10. And it's a message that made his stomach upset, turning it sour. Though Ezekiel and John's mission to the people of Israel was was pretty much the same, John's mission had a much more wide-ranging extent because Ezekiel's was more local. John's message is to the whole world. John, according to verse 11, was to prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And from this point on, the judgments would become, without question, more severe. So the brief break that we have here in chapter 10, it just emphasizes the fact that the things in the world are not what they seem. You know, the world tells us everything is getting better and, and we're, we're getting smarter and we're evolving and, and we're progressing. No, we're not. We're going down further and further and further. It's the great delusion that Satan has placed out there that people are going to fall for. Rather than believe in the truth, they're going to believe a lie. Believers know. Believers know that there is a war going on. And that at any moment, Jesus Christ could come back. And these on and off attacks against the church, and these short battles in this one big battle between good and evil, one day it's all going to come to a head. It's going to explode like a pent-up volcano into the worst spiritual and physical battle in the history of man. And yet God emphasizes another truth here in chapter 10. The Apostle John had an important part to play as a servant of the Most High God. And what his role was, he was to broadcast to the world the mystery of God, the mystery of salvation. So in closing, John had his part. He wasn't just a spectator. And too many times in church, we're spectators. We're just observing what's going on. We need to be participants like John. He was to warn the world. He was to get the word out that Jesus Christ was coming back and there would be a great judgment that would fall upon the earth. So we have to ask ourselves this question. What part are we playing in God's final plan? What part are you playing in God's final plan? We need to get the word out that Jesus Christ is coming again. And each one of us has been given an important life-saving mission, which is to share the good news, the gospels of salvation with the world. 
And like Jesus said, to pull people out of the fire. We have to do like John. We have to first take the message to heart. It has to be a part of us. We have to absorb it. We have to take it in like they did when they ate the book. It, had to become, it has to become a part of our life like it became a part of theirs by the eating of it. Jesus said in John 6.53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now Jesus wasn't talking about cannibalism. He was talking about absorbing Him in your life, taking Him into your life. Again, being a part of your life. Not just on a list of something I have to do during the week or, or a list of things to do in my life. Jesus must be taken in. His flesh has to become our flesh. You see, we have to eat the Word of God, allowing it to become a part of our very lives. It's true that the gospel of Jesus Christ involves bad news and good news about our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ who paid the complete price for our sins on that bloody cross, and He saves us when we simply trust in Him. We are witnesses of that. We are witnesses for Jesus Christ in this time period. We have to not only understand and accept the gospel for our own salvation, but we have to also be able to tell its saving message, its soul-saving message to everybody, to all nations, to all peoples and all tongues. Are we doing that? Or are we just, you know, letting other people do it and say, well, you know, somebody else can do that. Have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? And are you fulfilling God's mission to tell others about Jesus Christ? That was his great commission to us. To go make disciples of all the world to tell them about Christ, to tell them about what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that great judgment is coming. But if they don't know Him, they're going to experience the great judgment that's going to fall upon the earth. And they're going to miss the wonderful, wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ has provided for us. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank you so much for your great provision of salvation, God. We thank you for what our Lord and Savior did upon the cross. And Father, help us to, again, just not know about Christ, but to take him in. To absorb him into our life. Father, to... to, as it says in Acts, that in Him we live, we move, we have our being. Father, that He's in every part of our life and in all of our thoughts. And that, Father, we want people to know about the great God and Savior of our salvation. And if you're here this morning and, and you don't know this wonderful Savior, this wonderful Jesus, it's, that's your greatest need. Without Him, 
All you have to look forward to is judgment and great loss. But in Christ. And you have the blessed hope. The rapture of the church. Eternity in heaven with Christ. And fellow believers. And no part of the great tribulation period that will be taking place here on earth. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. You want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. Make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.